Hello, everyone. I'm Anne Mosser from the Sydney Opera House. This is a discussion of freedom of speech. Um, and we have with us today for this discussion Chris Berg and Julian Burnside. We're going to have time to hear from them about what they think of the situation, what their ideas are to improve things, and then have time for some questions and discussion with you. Before we start, um, you will have been bombarded with the hashtag if you wish to tweet, ideas for Oz. Um, and when we come to time for questions from you, there are microphones in the audience that we'll be asking you to move to, um, uh, to engage with our panellists. It was very interesting for those of you who were here for the session, our first session this morning, to realise that so many of the things we're talking about today are linked together, that questions of discussion about race, about migration, um, are all going to be threading through some of the conversations that we have today. We've seen a lot of discussion about freedom of speech in Australia um, in recent years, uh, based on uh, the prominence of some high-profile cases, but against a context in which things like uh, the rise of WikiLeaks, the work of Edward Snowden, dramatic changes in technology have really raised a whole lot of questions um, uh, that people have responded to. And, of course, also a geopolitical context where there are ongoing concerns about whether some issues, in fact, um, you know, raise really major national security implications. What's been interesting to observe is that what governments think, what advocates think, and what community members think are often quite different, sometimes in perfect accord, but sometimes really, really quite opposed. And there are some very important questions um, to ask about who is making the decisions about what is, you know, what, what are appropriate limits of free speech. Now, we're going to have a discussion today where we have, uh, with Chris Berg, the author of In Defence of Free Speech, From Ancient Greece to Andrew Bolt, a senior fellow... <laughs> it's a great title. We were wondering whether it would carry as much punch internationally as it does here. Um, Chris is a senior fellow at the Institute of Public Affairs in Melbourne. He's somebody who would be, uh, you know, we'll be hearing from about, about who would probably really wish that there were no limits on freedom of speech, uh, as would many of us, perhaps more in theory than in practice. But we also have with us Julian Burnside, distinguished advocate, author, um, campaigner for refugees. Um, and I feel that we, will have, we have in Chris and Julian people who are far more knowledgeable than I am about the technicalities of freedom of speech and law, so we will be relying on them. I'm here as a, a layperson, your representative. I won't be giving you a disquisition on the latest national security laws and, and you know, subclause X or Y. We'll be turning to them for those very detailed technical explanations. And we're going to really start off by looking at the big picture. What is the situation? Do we have enough freedom of speech? Do we have too little? Do we have too much? And what is the most serious threat to freedom of speech? Is it the kind of national security climate? Is it creeping political correctness? What is it? And I'm going to ask each of our panels to talk about each of our panelists to talk about that. And then we will move on to what their ideas are, what their ideas are for something that would really improve the situation. We might start with Chris, if we could, to have really address the general context for free speech in Australia at the moment. Sure. So, so I've been asked to talk about, you know, do we have too much freedom of speech? And that's really a sociological question um, that I'm not really qualified to answer. But what I can talk about is um, I think we have too many constraints on freedom of speech, too many laws that specifically constrain what we, what we say 
um, and, and what sort of expression we can um, conduct ourselves with. And I want to just very briefly survey um, uh, some of the recent freedom of speech debates to demonstrate um, how many how many different angles this, this, um, uh, this debate has come from. So uh, we'll start quickly with the Rudd government's internet filter, which was supposed to um, uh, uh, censor things like extreme pornography um, from the internet. Then the Gillard government wanted to impose regulation on the press. Now, this was ostensibly to boost media standards or something of the sort, but... I don't know whether you've read a recent book by um, uh, one of Julia Gillard's speechwriters where he says it was, in fact, um, to curb what he described as irresponsible, politicised editorial culture of News Limited. Um, uh, <laughs> all right. Um, uh, then there was the... Uh, then the Gillard government tried to introduce a human rights and anti-discrimination bill, which would have made it unlawful to offend someone on the basis of their political views in a workplace... And then we come to the Abbott government. The Abbott government has introduced a series of um, uh, constraints on freedom of speech. Under the banner of national security, you would have seen there is um, one provision which uh, makes it illegal to discuss ASIO operations, even ASIO operations that have long since been concluded on penalty of 10 years jail. There's a new crime of advocacy of terrorism. Now, this is somehow and in some way supposed to complement the crime of advocacy of terrorism that was introduced by the Howard government. There's a new cyberbullying authority with the power to affect what is described as a rapid takedown of harmful material from social network sites. This is as clear an internet censorship power as can be imagined. Just as obvious is a, um, uh, another internet censorship power that's being proposed, the new anti-copyright infringement bill, which would allow courts to block access to websites that are offering copyright infringing content. Think, for instance, the torrent website, The Pirate Bay, if you're familiar with that. And, of course, um, uh, there's the data retention policy, which is really about privacy, but I think there are some substantial free speech implications. Now, these are new proposals. These are on top of the existing corpus of um, speech-restricting law that we have in Australia. We already have a website-blocking mechanism in Section 313 of the Telecommunications Act. You all know that we have Section 18C of the Racial Discrimination Act, which was the famous... Um, uh, which was the provision used in the famous Andrew Bolt case. There are, on top of all this, limits on being offensive on a carriage or postal service. There are anti-swearing laws. There are some really, really concerning powers to um, uh, restrict the reporting of court proceedings. Even in one case that I really wish I could discuss but can't, um, uh, uh, some of the most... In so, alleged corruption in some of the most important bureaucratic economic institutions in the country, and we can't talk about it, but, you know, there you go. Uh, we have a communications regulator that thinks it's their job to regulate whether um, broadcast speech is fair or balanced. Governments think they have the right to decide... Uh, to, to restrict access to the public sphere through political donation laws. And then, of course, there is the granddaddy in the room, defamation. Um, and there's a lot to say about defamation law, um, which I'm not going to go into now, but I'm happy to discuss it. Um, uh, I've been asked to, to suggest what I think is the major free speech uh, restriction in Australia, and it's not specifically one of any of these laws. I think what we're seeing at the moment is the um, interaction between speech restrictions and technology. Um, uh, new 
technologies that allow us to say and do more in incredibly technologically complicated ways, and governments have decided that that is the new venue in which they would like to, um, uh, to, to manage the public sphere. I, I, I do a lot of Senate inquiries, and when you do Senate inquiries, you end up talking about very specific pieces of legislation, and they tend to be technology ones like copyright or data retention, and you find, to, to, your, to your horror, that the politicians that you're talking to, that you're trying to give evidence to, have very little understanding <laughs> of the legislation that they're trying to impose and no understanding of the technological context in which they're trying to impose it. The lack of knowledge about copyright or the lack of knowledge about data retention or telecommunications intercept law is rather horrifying. Now, that makes sense. This is complicated stuff. But the, government, the fact that the government is trying to regulate it, to try to control it and try to um, govern our speech on those new networks and those, those new tools that we have, I think, is really worrying. And that's where the free speech debate is going to be, um, uh, not just now, but, but five, ten years down the track. We might ask you for your idea to make, a, a stra- you know, to make things better in this regard yeah, now. So how will we just generically fix it? Um, <laughs> Without the use of a magic wand. Yeah, yeah, all right. So there's no easy way to fix this. Uh, the, quite obviously, I've listed a whole bunch of, of things to do. Now, I'm, uh, my conservative friends hate this, but I like the idea of transposing the First Amendment of the American Constitution into the Australian Constitution. I like the idea of an incredibly limited um, Bill of Rights, but that is not at all a magic wand. Um, bills of rights are... Um, uh, uh, their, their effect is determined by their context. The First Amendment of the United States wasn't really activated in a free speech sense for um, at least, in fact, much more than 100 years until the uh, end of the First World War. And, of course, um, uh, Supreme Courts and High Courts are going to interpret um, uh, these sorts of bills of rights and First Amendments in, a, in, in the social context in which they are operating. These, these laws are human-made laws and they are human-interpreted laws. I think we've got a deeper problem, though, and I think we really need to tackle the outrage culture that we have at the moment. Now, we're all familiar with these spikes of social media outrage, um, and they're lots of fun, and we can get involved, and yeah, yeah, you build up, and everybody, they're sort of a consumption good, they're entertainment for everyone, and we shout down someone um, or, 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 or attack someone's place of employment or something like that. Um, it's got a real, it, we have a really significant problem when the political class start to respond to that, when they start seeing social media outrage and thinking, well, you know, here's a populist outrage, why don't I jump aboard and start drafting legislation to fix that? I think. The more this social media outrage builds up, the more pressure there's going to be, political pressure, to constrain our speech and in, and, and in dangerous and really, uh, I think, anti-democratic ways. So I've, I've no answer. I have one um, uh, plausible technical fix that probably won't do much to fix it, but I think the real problem is we've got to start tackling this outrage culture and I have no idea how to do that. <laughs> Humble. (laughs) Unusually humble for me, I have to say. (laughs) Um, Julian, tell us what you think of the situation. Okay. I mean, because I'm a lawyer, I think rights is a kind of interesting area. But I remember learning at law school that all rights have their limits. And typically, when the subject matter falls in the domain of civil rights, um, the limits uh, arise either because of uh, intersecting problems or because they run into conflict with someone else's corresponding rights. 
And as one lecturer said, uh, notably, your right to swing your fist stops just short of my nose. <laughs> it captures the point very, very well. Now, it seems to me that the... Obviously, we recognise that there is a right to free speech, but like all other rights, it does have its limits, and the limits have been uh, fairly well identified. Um, and I think, generalising, the limits uh, are designed to avoid harm while balancing the benefit that comes with freedom of speech, uh, the, the limits try to avoid harm associated with freedom of speech. So, for example, the defamation laws, which Chris doesn't like, are designed to avoid harm to a person's reputation. That seems legitimate enough, I guess, especially if you're the person who's been defamed. Um, the outrage culture may prove to be a boon for defamation lawyers. <laughs> I've never actually advised anyone to sue for defamation because all you're doing is keeping the story alive. Um, uh, the, the, second, the second is um, speech which is inclined to incite violence, typically violence against a minority group, because it's kind of hard to incite people to inflict violence on the majority because you're likely to lose. <laughs> um, and and, and, and the, the, uh, the larger overarching idea, and this is why your First Amendment idea probably won't work. I'm sorry to oh, say oh, that. Oh, I know it won't but work. But Oliver Wendell... I, I was asked for an idea. <laughs> OK, there you go. <laughs> and like the IPA always does, he came up with a dud. They are just exercising my right of free speech. I'm not anything against you yet. <laughs> Sorry, you aren't the IPA. Harm, harm. You, you, aren't, you aren't the same thing. You're not the same thing as the IPA. You're identifying a bit too closely with your employer. Um, I don't intend to say anything at all offensive about you personally, and that's for reasons that I'll come to in a minute. Um, actually, I asked him backstage whether I could say something seriously shocking about him, and he didn't say no. He just said yes. He just, he just, he just, well, you said yes, but it wasn't, it wasn't in the, an affirmative yes. Uh, but he said, well, if you say that, no one will believe you anyway. So, um, I thought it was quite a good answer, and I'm not going to say it. Um, but the First Amendment idea won't work, because Oliver Wendell Holmes, a Supreme Court of the US judge, um, and a libertarian then, and would now be regarded as an outrageous libertarian, I suppose, he said in a case on free speech, on the First Amendment, I think, um, before the Second World War, he said freedom of speech has its limits. It, is, it does not justify falsely shouting fire in a crowded cinema. That's a really, again, a fairly obvious point. Um, for someone to falsely shout fire in this room now uh, would be an abuse of free speech and could not sensibly be protected by anyone's grand ideas about the importance of free speech. And it certainly doesn't help to support a democratic uh, system and it doesn't help support freedom of thought. And after all, free speech is a necessary corollary to the idea of freedom of thought. So, uh, the limits to free speech are initially designed to avoid causing harm, uh, harm to you know, physical harm to people, shouting fire in a crowded cinema, um, inciting people to violence against a minority group, um, damaging a person's reputation uh, through defamation. But there is something uh, that hovers at the edges, and Chris and I, I think, are in agreement that the free speech problems in Australia all arise at the edges. Um, and the difficulty that hovers at the edges is, what about free speech, which will insult, humiliate, and seriously offend a person uh, because it is an attack on them, whether or not it's defamatory. 
Now that's the territory of 18C of the Racial Discrimination Act. And it seems to me that there must be a point where you say, well, yes, okay, if you're going to say something that is just uh, deeply insulting and humiliating to a person who comes from a minority group, then maybe that's not such a good idea. But then the answer to it might not lie in banning it, but in pro propounding, and this is my big, one of my big ideas at least, what about manners? Manners have traditionally provided a natural break on people's desire to exercise free speech in a way that will simply humiliate or offend people. And as social media make it more possible to address a wide range of people beyond the people around you at the pub, um, it, the, the ability to insult and humiliate and hurt people is spread that much more widely. Etoc and Bolt was an interesting example of that, um, where Andrew Bolt said uh, famously, notoriously, that, um, that, that Pat Etoc and various other um, people who identified as Aborigines but who had uh, pale skin, he said that they were in effect choosing to identify as Aborigines to advance their careers. Now, one thing that is not often spoken about in connection with the Bolt case, and which is important, and which is not often spoken about by, wasn't spoken about by Chris when he referred to 18C, is the next provision in the same Act, which is 18D. 18D says that there's an exception to the operation of 18C, and the exception is if, the, if the, what was said was said reasonably and in good faith for the purpose of a um, fair comment uh, piece in a newspaper. Now, you could broaden that to social media, I guess, but the point is that the judge found as a fact that what Bolt wrote about Etoc was uh, offensive, intended to insult and humiliate, that it was factually false, that it had not been done reasonably and it had not been done in good faith. Now, I think it's a very, very difficult argument to make that people should be allowed to stand on a platform as high as the... As the um, uh, Murdoch Press, and set out to, in uh, to insult and humiliate people on the grounds of their race, and to do so not in good faith, not reasonably, and not accurately. You know, they, those, Pat Etock could very easily have sued for defamation, but she made the very good point. She wasn't after damages. She just wanted to have him corrected. She wanted to have it shown that what she, he had said was false. Now, that seems to me to bring us back into the territory of good manners. If you look at 18C and 18D together, they don't restrict free speech except by a sort of statutory form of good manners. And that's why I think the, big, the first big idea is let's try and concentrate on encouraging people to recognise the importance of good manners. It, it is, I know it sounds trivial, but I think it is actually quite important given the way society is developing. The other, the other idea I did want to suggest is it's time for new ideas. Um, that's kind of self-referential, and I don't mean to spend any time on it. <laughs> but it is time in this country for some fresh ideas. We seem to be churning the same old ideas again and again and again, and social media perhaps is the greatest problem here because my experience of social media is that while there's a 140 um, character limit on Twitter, some people seem to have trouble building their ideas up to 140 characters. <laughs> a few people have trouble trimming them down to 140 characters, but they're in the minority. 
Um, so, uh, and that seems to me to demonstrate, apart from anything else, especially the poverty of politics that we heard amply discussed this, earlier this morning, um, we do need some really good, fresh, uh, bright ideas in this country to get us back to where we once were. Can I just, can I just pop in one thing? And I don't, wanna, I don't want us to spend the whole time talking about the Bolt case, mainly because it's so incredibly dull to me by this stage. Um, uh, but, but hang, the... on though, hang on, though. Hang on, though. Uh, some of us, is, <laughs> some of us are still quite interested. <laughs> and, and, and you did mention it. Yeah, no, no, no. And, and it's the in the IP, list. I've got it in the list. Come and on. the IPA Manners, said it. Manners, people. And the IPA said a lot about so, it at the time and didn't say anything about Scott McIntyre. Okay, so uh, we did. Um, uh, now, I, I want to jump aboard the falsely shouting fire in a crowded theatre, which is very often used. It's, a, um, it's one of the, the standard tropes in the freedom of speech debate. But the falsely shouting fire in a crowded theatre was not about a case... Um, uh, ..was not used in a case of a guy shouting fire in a crowded theatre falsely. It was actually a World War I case. The, um, person who was being prosecuted was a um, dissident uh, in the United States. He was a socialist. He was against conscription. He was against the American imperialist war. And, um, uh, and he was prosecuted for sedition. He was sent to jail. And the, um, and the, the Supreme Court found, well, you know, it's, it's all well and good to say you've got your First Amendment, but, you know, in wartime, you know, oh, you can't talk about that sort of thing. The problem with a lot of these analogies is that they get used in a, um, uh, in a way to justify much worse things than, um, uh, than they would suggest. So when we talk about falsely shouting fire in a crowded theatre, we're not talking about that. We're actually talking about giving the court or a court or a government the capacity to judge what is um, beyond the pale, what do they think is beyond the pale. Now, these days... I presume everybody in this room would feel at least a tinge of sympathy towards the anti-conscriptionist in the First World War. That I'm, I'm hardly a socialist. I don't know whether that surprises anybody. But I understand... Um, uh, I'm sympathetic with his argument against, you know, I don't want to be sent to die in a, um, in a continental war. But, 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 but unfortunately, you know, too bad. Can't shout falsely in a crowded theatre. Uh, but, Chris, I, I agree with you, but I think you're... Perhaps taking the illustration of it too literally. Um, what, no, no. What Holmes no. used it for, and what I used it for today, was to make the point that there are rational limits to be set on free speech. It's very easy to accept that you can't falsely shout fire in a crowded auditorium. Um, so once you accept that, you do accept that rights have their limits. And then the question is, how do you set the limits? And I would say the limits should be set by reference to um, the real prospect of physical harm. Um, or reputational harm, and I would go a little further and say, what can you call that? Um, well, so, certainly inciting harm to other people, but um, badly hurt feelings. I, I, I'm not. I don't don't have a final position on that. Sure, Maybe well, it depends on individual I, cases. A, I am a hundred percent with you on um, uh, incitement to violence. This is a very traditional constraint on freedom of speech. Mm. And the reason that we say incitement to violence and there's uniform agreement is because we view it as the boundary between words and action. So it's one thing, and, and John Stuart Mill had this story about um, uh, it's all right to say that corn dealers are starving the poor, so, so bread sellers are starving the poor. If you write that in the newspaper, um, uh, that's all well and good. That's within the 
limits of, um, uh, that's within protected speech limits. If you're in front of a group of rioters who are in front of the house of a corn dealer and you shout, corn dealers are starving the poor, mm. that's like incitement to violence because they're going to ransack his house and they might, they might kill him or something like that. So that's, the, that's a very standard boundary. My problem with the um, fire in a crowded theatre analogy is that what it's doing is it's giving the government the capacity to choose quite, a part, quite well past the, um, uh, the violence. It's deciding what is the offensive harm of speech, what is beyond the pale in a, in, in, in a pure expression sense. Now, I know that this is obviously a, um, a matter of judgment and, and we all will be able to debate cases at the margins, but I don't think offence or insult, as, the, um, as Section 18C of the Racial Discrimination Act, so uh, offend, insult, humiliate, and intimidate. So offend and insult, very strongly, I'm opposed to the idea that that might be um, uh, unlawful in Australian law. Humiliate and intimidate, well, they're actually probably covered by um, a number of other federal and state laws as well. Chris, well but can you're overlooking 18D. No, no, I'm, sorry, I'm, can, I, yeah. can we just get your response to Julian's remarks about 18D? Yeah, so sure. that the provision that the, that speech is protected if it's in good faith. Yeah, sure. So we're Re always... Reasonable in good faith. S sorry. Yeah, yeah. so... so, so <laughs> So, um, look, everybody raises 18D, and, um, uh, and, and I guess the question is, why don't we, when we're talking about 18C, we actually say, oh, 18C and D. What? Well, I, I actually think the interesting thing is not... I mean, I may be wrong here, but I think we all have heard about 18C, and I yeah. think 18D is less discussed and in, is, in fact, the, you know, trying to be a guarantor of public debate in relation to those provisions yeah, in 18 Absolutely. So... 18D gives a number of um, uh, uh, exceptions, and the main one is, you know, as long as it's in good faith. As long as the statement is in good faith or, and reasonable and so forth. And so Justice Bromberg, the, the, um, uh, the judge in the Bolt case, spent a lot of time trying to figure out whether um, Andrew Bolt's columns were in good faith. And there were two reasons that he said that they weren't. First... He got his facts wrong, or at least some of his facts wrong. So there were a um, series of errors that um, the judge believed he should have um, more closely checked. The other part was his tone. His tone was wrong. It was excessively sarcastic. It was, um, he had a lot of tonal issues. Now, the judge didn't distinguish, um, didn't say, you know, if he'd only got his facts wrong, then it would have been good faith or not good faith. If he'd only had too much sarcasm. He said, you know, the combination of wrong facts and bad tone means it's not in good faith. Now, I don't think, it, like, like I'm, I'm not supporting people getting facts wrong by any means, and obviously there was, a, there was probably a case for defamation there as well, but I don't like the idea that a judge is um, uh, judging the tone of an article as a basis on which it's considered to be unlawful, whether you, something you write is too sarcastic to be lawful. I don't think that's the sort of power that we want to vest in the judiciary. On the well, other hand, on the other hand, should we go along with a system which says you can insult a member of a minority on racial grounds and you can do it even if you're sarcastic, factually wrong and unreasonable? You know, that seems to me to be difficult well, to accept. Justice Bromberg decided one way and, <laughs> and some, some people would have wished he had decided other. And I, I mean, I think it's an interesting question is that 
when you put it like that, that something like that is decided on a tone of sarcasm, and you know, for those of us who love sarcasm, find uh, find it's that, all I have. that find that very unnerving. Mm. But in reality, <laughs> in the legal system, we are asking judges to make those kind of very nuanced decisions all the time. When you abstract them from the context of a legal process, whether you're asking a judge to decide about somebody who's committed a serious, um, um, crim a serious crime about issues like remorse, <laughs> about issues like responsibility, about issues about whether they were in a position to know what they were doing. Those are similarly extremely nuanced decisions that they're making on the basis of, of the kind of information that they have before them. And if you, again, if you took that out of context, uh, it, it, it could seem um, very much like that. This is, this is actually a really interesting one and a really interesting point. So, um, one of my favourite um, uh, things I like to raise in the freedom of speech discussion, and it's a defamation issue. So, in defamation, um, uh, like a lot of laws, judges have a hypothetical model of what an ordinary reasonable person would, what, what they would understand out of the, the contested statement. So the judge thinks, well, an ordinary reasonable person, they're not quick to judge, they're not sort of um, excessively biased, they're not cruel or something like that. How would they read the, um, uh, the, the contested um, speech? Now, this is actually, what, what does an ordinary person, ordinary reasonable person think? But the judiciary and, and the legal fraternity has this model in their head and, and there's a huge jurisprudence that I'm sure Julian knows a lot more about than I. But there's a great study that was done a couple of years ago that, that, that said, okay, well, this is an empirical question. We could actually poll people to find out what ordinary reasonable people think. Um, and what this, this so they, they first they um, did a survey of uh, judges and lawyers, find out how they would respond to um, a certain statement, and then they, uh, then they surveyed the population, non-legal people. First question, are you an ordinary, reasonable person? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and, and the fantastic thing was they found that um, uh, the judiciary and the legal fraternity thinks that the ordinary, reasonable person is the most bigoted, quick-to-judge... <laughs> Um, uh, compared to, uh, you know, Australians are actually pretty tolerant. They're actually pretty capable of assessing the reliability of a statement that they read. They're pretty sceptical. They spend a lot of time judging the reputation of the speaker before they take that speaker's word. You are all judging my reputation right now. You know, everything I say, you're going like, yeah, but he is from the IPA. So, um, <laughs> And, and, and good, you should, um, and, and we should be doing it to all people, but, but I don't think that the, the tests that we use in a lot of these freedom of speech discussions reflects our just generic cynicism and scepticism, and I think it means that we, we lower the bar for what's considered to be unlawful or illegitimate speech. Now, can we move on? I think we're going to say we are not going to talk about anything that has numbers or letters in relation to it. We're going to get away from the 18 Cs and Ds. Hey, most and of the words I think you're saying are letters. <laughs> <laughs> the combination of the two. Just be creative. Just I be creative. never realised it was going to be so hard chairing a discussion with some serious legal firepower here, but I'm going to keep on doing my best. Um, <laughs> Let's, I want to go to some fundamental questions um, when we think about free speech because Chris's excellent book about free speech from ancient Greece, ancient Rome, all the way up to Andrew Bolt, um, uh, there's a lot, of just a lot of that foundational work about free speech um, is really about free speech in relation to government. It's about what the government, whichever of those political context you're in, what ability does the government have to prevent you from saying something or prevent 
groups of people from saying things. Um, and it seems to me that the situation is much more varied now. And, I mean, particularly given that one of the points raised in relation to the Scott McIntyre case is that those tweets that he made are not, you know, are not things that a government is going to prevent him from saying, but theoretically the code of conduct of his employer is going to, do it, to prevent him from saying those things, and that that's a contract that he's freely entered into and so on. There, there are reasons why that's fine. But it seems to me that there are many more things other than governments that potentially have the ability to restrict freedom of speech. Ones that you've mentioned, the outrage culture, something like your employer saying, well, you're not allowed to say this and you're not allowed to say that, whether you enter, enter into that agreement freely or not. And I wondered your comments on what those other things are and whether you still see the state as the main concern. Sure. Um, I see the state as the main concern and I see um, when we discuss freedom of speech, I'm talking about the state. This isn't my um, invention by any means. This is a, um, a long-standing principle in, in freedom of speech philosophy and, um, and law as well. And I was looking at some of the international um, law in this respect. And so, for instance, the EU Charter of Rights uh, talks about freedom of expression is specifically constrained... It's denied when it's specifically constrained by, in the phrase, is a public authority. So I'm not... Uh, I, this isn't just some Crisberg weird right-wing thing. Um, but can uh, I say, so you're, you're exactly right. I mean, after yeah. all, it's governments that make the laws. And if there's a law that restrains freedom of speech, it's going to be made by a government. Yeah. Now, now, that doesn't mean that I think that what happened to Scott McIntyre is a good thing. Um, uh, in fact, I, I, I don't think it was. I think it's, it's really problematic. Um, uh, the difference is, you know, I oppose things that aren't... Um, uh, I oppose things and they aren't necessarily attacks on freedom of speech. I think that we, we have... Uh, our taxes are too high. I don't think that's a freedom of speech problem. I don't think they should have sacked Scott McIntyre. The Scott McIntyre case is interesting and complicated for a number of reasons. Um, one of the things that I've been waiting for someone to argue, and I'd really like to hear it because I think it'd be a good and fun and interesting way to discuss, is um, that it is illegitimate for employers to have social media policies at all. I want to hear someone argue that case because in the absence of that argument, in the absence of that strong form case against social media policies, what I see is all we're really discussing is is SBS's social media policy too restrictive, not restrictive enough? Was what he said strictly violating it, so on and so forth? We're just talking about what I see as really an industrial relations debate. Now, it's, a, it's an interesting one, and I'm happy to toss around industrial relations issues. I'm happy to talk about the minimum wage and so forth. But I'm not, I don't think these are freedom of speech issues. I think that he is the victim of an outright rage culture. I don't think he should have been sacked, but I don't think when we talk about freedom of speech, we're actually clarifying the issues by, um, by throwing the Scott McIntyre case in there as well. What do you yeah. think, Julian? Look, I think um, employers have a legitimate interest in maintaining secrecy of some of their information and maintaining the public reputation of their organisation. So that would justify a social media policy of some sort. And it also justifies, to some extent, um, the confidentiality agreements which are incorporated in a lot of employment or employment-like contracts. Um, the difficulty is that they often overreach what is reasonable to the objective thereafter. Um, if the social media policy of SBS is such that a person like Scott McIntyre can't say anything about a subject unrelated to sport, unrelated to SBS, then 
maybe it just goes a bit too far. Uh, I don't think anyone thought less of SBS on account of some tweets that he did, um, um, even though some people may have found them uh, offensive. The confidentiality agreements in contracts worry me a lot. It's been coming across my desk quite a lot recently because the various service providers uh, who run detention centres, especially detention centres offshore, um, all have remarkably stringent uh, and very wide-ranging confidentiality agreements which they force their employees and subcontractors to sign. Um, that means that people, for example, doctors employed by the service provider who does medical stuff, uh, it, they're not allowed to report gross abuses of the medical uh, rights of asylum seekers they deal with. On the face of it, they are told, you will be dismissed if you reveal the fact that we're injecting people with, say, um, contaminated water instead of, instead of um, you know, some appropriate medication. If they said that, if that was happening, and I'm not suggesting it is, if it was happening and the doctor said it, they would be sacked because that would be a breach of the confidentiality obligation. But there's a nice little out which the courts have worked up over the last century or two, and that is that um, a confidentiality agreement does not prevent the disclosure of an iniquity. Now, what constitutes an iniquity is a bit hard to pin down, but um, it seems to me that the people who have worked for the service providers offshore and are outraged at things they've seen aren't prevented from disclosing those outrages. For example, remember a year ago, Razor Barati was killed on Manus Island? Um, several, several eyewitnesses wrote statements saying exactly how he'd been killed and identified the guards who'd killed him. They were then taken into a little room by the security providers and were tied to chairs and were beaten up and told to withdraw their witness statements and they were told if they didn't withdraw them, they'd be raped. Now, that is something which should never be possible. It's the sort of thing that should never be restricted uh, by virtue of a confidentiality agreement and in my opinion it is very clear that they can't be prevented from speaking about that publicly on account of the confidentiality agreement. But it gets a little worse because the government asserts, oh you've got another obligation that, re that restricts your free speech and that is you're deemed to be an officer of the Commonwealth and you're subject to the sort of uh, code of secrecy in the Official Secrets Act or whatever it is and you'll be prosecuted and jailed for 10 years if you talk about the things we're doing. Uh, no one's been prosecuted yet and a couple of people have published books about what's been going on, so maybe the government doesn't want the whole nasty story coming out in the course of prosecution. But that's a restriction on free speech that I think is absolutely outrageous. There's no national security interest in it. There's a great national interest in having the facts come out because one day, one day, we'll be held to account for what has gone on in secret behind a wall of um, denial of free speech. Any comment from you about that, Chris, before we... Look, that, that, is, a, that is a horrifying um, story and I, I'm a supporter of uh, more information out of government rather than less and, and, and certainly... And, and we have one of these issues where governments have um, out-contracted a lot of um, uh, services and so forth and I'm a supporter of um, a lot of these privatisations and things because I think they make governments more efficient but what they do also do is, um, is provide these barriers to um, information provision. But, but as you've pointed out, well, in, in some of the cases, the, uh, the restrictions 
um, on public servants are stronger um, uh, than they even would be in the corporate world. I think that there's an interesting, um, and this doesn't speak exactly to that point, but there is an interesting um, uh, uh, issue with public servants and freedom of speech um, uh, in that there's a long tradition that we should be granting more freedom of speech to public servants than um, we might do to employees of, of corporations. And the reason we do that is because, of course, public servants, their employers are the state. Um, and they are political citizens as much as, um, as much as anybody else is. So they have, they should, I should say, they should have more leeway to discuss the affairs of their, um, uh, of their, of their business, uh, of their employers. Um, this is, uh, there was a famous case in Australia, the La Legal case, which was um, uh, someone tweeting about um, the Department of Immigration, I think, as a, as a public employee. In the US, they have really strong protections because the First Amendment is this amazing thing um, where you can really, you can, you can tweet the most offensive things about, you know, your direct boss um, if you're a public, public servant and like, oh, oh, yeah, well, that counts as politics. So, you know, it's a fantastic example. Um, uh, but, but I think when we talk about public employees, we, we're talking about a different, different level of freedom of speech protection, or at least we should be, in my view. And, and, I mean, you raise a good point. And standing back from it, what you really have to say is look at the limits on free speech and see whether those are directed to some legitimate, justifiable objective. Of course, public servants come across all sorts of very sensitive information which probably should not become public uh, merely because they happen to know about it and disagree with it. On the other hand, uh, there are some things that are done and known to public servants, which should never be tolerated in a society that imagines itself to be as our society is, and those people shouldn't be prevented from disclosing the things that they find. You know, um, I mean, where you draw the line is awfully difficult, and that's probably the point at which you and I can't agree, but always, or always... Anybody. Well, <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, ultimately I end up agreeing with the judge, so... <laughs> now, we uh, are going to take some questions from you. Um, there are two microphones, uh, number one and number two, one over here and one upstairs in the mezzanine. If you want to come to one of those microphones with a question, while we're waiting to see what you have to well, say... While yep. people move to the far right, as we see it from here... <laughs> um, Accepting that right and left are meaningless distinctions these days, as <laughs> someone said in the first uh, session. Yes, from, from um, I did want to say um, one thing about political free speech. The High Court of Australia, in a, a decision a few years ago, held that there was implied in our constitution, for goodness sake, an implied right of free political speech. Um, which is good, because when Tony Abbott calls boat people illegals, I can say he's lying, um, because that is a matter of politics. Um, uh, and, and he will not dare sue, I know that for sure, because he, <laughs> he'll lose. <laughs> um, but but I, I think it is important for you to recognise that old-fashioned as our constitution is, inadequate as it is in many ways, we do have an implied right oh, no, of no, free, no. free political speech. No, no, and, and it is an increasingly powerful one, and the, there's a Union's New South Wales case that some of you may be familiar with, but um, uh, the state government tried to restrict the capacity of unions to donate to the Labor Party, and there are a few other restrictions in, in there, and the um, High Court decided that that was a restriction on um, political parties and unions' freedom of speech. This is a, the right to political communication, it's a strange little thing because it appears to be in, like, conjured out of thin air by the High Court, but um, over time I suspect it's going to grow into something quite substantial and we're seeing some movement mm. on that. Well, I think there are some very interesting t conversations about free speech, money, 
whether some people have more freedom of speech than others. But we're going to take a question here from Louise on microphone one. Thank you so much, Van, and thank you very much, Julian and Chris as well. So I have a question. I think the reason that we're all... A statement first and then a question. I think we're all here because we absolutely support your idea, Julian, that we should have more fresh ideas in Australia. And the question is, how do we do it? And is, are the freedom of speech laws preventing us from actually creating those new ideas? Well, as to how we create them, I think I'll take the Chris Berg defence and say that I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, oh, such a humble <laughs> collection of puns. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I don't think fresh ideas are being restricted by uh, restrictions on free speech. I think it's actually just a lack of imagination. You know, I mean, we've been a very creative country in many ways, but Donald Horne really picked it quite well uh, when he said, ironically, that we were lucky. And if, if you have the, if you can be bothered, um, when you go home, look up a poem by Henry Lawson called Middleton's Rouseabout. It's a terrific little typical Lawson poem, but it's about a rouseabout who, as the refrain goes, hasn't any opinions, hasn't any ideas, and he ends up taking over the station because Middleton drinks himself into a stupor and the, the rouseabout takes over running the station and still hasn't any opinions, hasn't any ideas. And it's kind of a metaphor for the way Australia looks sometimes to be drifting along. And defunding the CSIRO is appalling. If we're... We don't like ideas. Australia does not lack ideas. Um, uh, we have a problem in that every country, every democratic political system has a problem in that those ideas are very hard to implement. You have to convince a lot of people. Um, I don't think that, that <laughs> there's a lot being written about freedom of speech. Um, there's a lot being written about ways to, to fix Australia, to boost the economy, to restrain the economy, to fix climate change, to let climate change happen, to all sorts of stuff. There are so many ideas, so many ideas. But we live in a democracy, so we have to convince other people about our ideas. We have a lot of rubbish ideas, and, and so the democratic political system stops us from some, making some really stupid decisions, and it stops us from making some good decisions as well, but that's just how it is. I don't think the problem that Australia faces is a lack of ideas. I think we just have a traditional issue that, you know, it's hard to implement ideas and get, you know, 50 plus 1 percent of the population to agree with us. Part of the problem also is that fears trump ideas. <laughs> yes. Do you think that Australia, more than other places, has a particular problem with ideas? No. No, 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 no. no. You think it's a no. feature? Well, I mean, we, we, we import our ideas like... Um, any, any small country and many of our ideas come from bigger countries and, and that's interesting when we translate them to, to the Australian context or discard them or embrace them as we, we see fit. Uh, we're incredibly negative about Australia and I, I, I mean, I, I tend to this as well and you know, you want to talk down the Australian political system and you say the political class are hopeless but well, the political class are hopeless everywhere. Um, <laughs> they're all rubbish. They're not more rubbish here um, we, we have a I'm sorry, we heard this morning yeah. <laughs> four, four and I wouldn't prime want to ministers disagree. in five years more than Italy. So what? <laughs> no, no, but in all seriousness, so what? We have one of the best economies in the world. We um, have the highest living standards in the world. We are some of the richest people in the world. We, uh, I like to complain about freedom of speech, but we, we do have a very free country. We are doing a hell of a lot of things right just because some people in Canberra can't decide who the current prime minister should be. 
oh, who cares? Does it really, does, does, you know, does the idea that it might be Tony Abbott or Malcolm Turnbull or Kevin Rudd or Julie Killer, does that really change your... Okay. I can't talk to these people. <laughs> We're going to take a question from microphone number one. Uh, thank you for the opportunity to ask a question. Uh, and thank you also for presenting a big idea, which is that we should have good manners. And also another idea, which is, are we lacking imagination? And I'm wondering whether uh, our goal of having good manners might uh, prevent our imagination sometimes, particularly if you could potentially lose your job for speaking out, if you work at SBS. Um, a lot of us have mortgages and kids, and maybe it's just easier to be quiet most of the time. I think that's a really good point. Um, it's the, the chilling effect uh, that you're talking about, I think. Um, not that someone says you can't say that, but you live in fear that if you say it, there'll be consequences, and that's a, a real problem. I think it was arguably bad-mannered of SBS to throw him out. I mean, I think there are deeper difficulties with that situation. Um, I'm not sure it cuts into the manners debate to any real extent. Um, I'm not sure if that deals with your question adequately. Let's, let's pretend it does. What, a... <laughs> what I like about... Although, actually, I'm sorry, Chris. No, oh, please, go ahead. Um, <laughs> there, there is one other thing. Um, I, I, you, you said, uh, would, would manners constrict our imagination? I don't think so. And, it, you know, one of the great, one of the great uh, repressions of free speech in history was Galileo, who was um, thrown into you know, house arrest for the rest of his life for saying things which were very offensive to the uh, doctrine of the church at the time. Oh, I think he was vindicated, or they vindicated him, I think, a few years ago. So it only took a few centuries. Um, the, the thing about that was that he did not set out to offend anyone uh, he knew it would cause trouble because he knew that the, the, the Pope objected to his idea because they'd been childhood friends. And he, he um, did it politely. Uh, it, didn't, it didn't prevent him from having the imaginative idea that he did once he'd observed the phases of Venus and so on. But uh, I, don't think, I don't think good manners uh, will limit people's imagination at all. I, I, I want to throw this out there because the argument, uh, th this discussion, um, I hear a lot from uh, my conservative friends. Um, it, the parallel here is political correctness gone mad. Um, uh, uh, social constraints on what we say and think. And a lot of people have been arguing that political correctness is one of those social constraints and it prevents us from talking about the real issues with, say, immigration or, 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 or multiculturalism or something like that. Um, uh, and, and the lesson I take from that, seeing here, here, uh, hearing this story from both the left and the right, that there are these norms that um, prevent us from speaking, is that we're always self-regulating our speech. I am self-regulating my speech right now. I am choosing my words very carefully. I'm not saying anything that comes to my head. You are all self-regulating your speech when you um, talk to friends, when you are at work. You're all doing all sorts of regulation of speech. You are all adhering, adhering to norms and standards that help us be sort of a, a, a healthy society and we can cooperate and communicate with each other and not, you know, just a constant bundle of offence and, and so forth. Um, we are always doing that and I'm not, I'm not sure that that's really what's holding us back and it's one of the... And, and the um, 
uh, uh, the relationship between things like the, the Scott McIntyre case and um, political correctness gone mad is why I think when we talk about freedom of speech, it's much more analytically valuable and, and much, more, uh, uh, much more practical to specifically refer to legal constraints. We can talk about outrage culture, we can talk about, um, uh, you know, I don't like the norms, and, and so forth, and that's all, all very interesting. But to say that's freedom of speech, I just think we're going we're gonna to wind ourselves up where we end up talking about, you know, political correctness gone mad. Number one. Um, thanks very much um, for your contribution, Chris and Julian. It's been very interesting. Um, I think of the, the most recent part of the discussion, nobody's used the word whistleblower, but certainly I think that would open up another massive discussion around what generally happens to whistleblowers. Um, but my comment um, is actually slightly different, and it actually goes potentially to the, um, the discussion in the previous uh, session this morning too, which Julian referred to as the poverty of politics. And Chris goes back to one of the first comments you made around your experience at Senate committees and presentations and the concerning levels of ignorance around what those decision-makers actually you know, the level of ignorance that they dis display. This brings me back to remembering um, a comment that was made, I think maybe last year, by a former Prime Minister of New Zealand, Geoffrey Palmer, who's also a lawyer and a law lecturer, um, who, who was talking very much around the, I guess, the demise of the very, the very real lack of, um, of counsel taken by politicians in New Zealand these days from senior and quite learned government bureaucrats. And that those people are no longer listened to in the way that they were in previous decades. And therefore, I wonder whether that's part of, you know, and, and that combined with now a 50% um, professional politician in Australia that we also heard about in the last session, are those combinations of things coming, you know, they're not listening to the bureaucrats, they're not listening to those professional people, they're not, they're, they actually are coming as professional politicians, which most, many of us think limits their um, ability as well. Is this all giving us, you know, poor, the, the increasingly poor outcomes that we're seeing, including, and it's, and it's really very relevant because they're the people, clearly, that are making these decisions to increase the number of laws around freedom of speech? Because there's so little time left, can I just say um, I think it's a problem of retail politics in Australia, which has sunk to the level of the $2 shop. <laughs> I, I, I think politicians should take more advice, but um, uh, I'm a bit of a... Um, I'm, I'm a bit negative on this because I think every political incentive um, they face is for them not to do so. Uh, they... Politicians pass laws not because they necessarily think it's the um, best option out of a dozen different policy approaches. They pass laws because of, of politics, because um, they'll be able to retail it, uh, retail it, they'll be able to um, sell it to a special interest or so forth. And, and that's what's governing this. Now, the, the alternative, I think, is also really problematic because um, if you spend too much time just taking the, um, uh, the advice of the bureaucratic um, uh, masters, then you sort of have a technocracy which isn't very democratic either. So, you know, we, we have a political system. This is one of the reasons that I think government should do less rather than more, because I think every incentive of, of them 
is to do worse things when they do anything. So, you know, if they can avoid some of that, I think we'd, we'd be better off. <laughs> now, we're almost out of time, uh, and so I must apologise to our questioners, but I'm just going to ask um, uh, Chris and Julian uh, to talk briefly about something that, that... I mean, there's a range of things that we haven't got to yet, um, which, you know, it's a big and rich issue. But... Just a quick response about what you think recent um, changes like the ASIO legislation and the general climate about, um, uh, you know, what things like data retention and so on mean for journalists specifically. Because traditionally, many of the things that we have, you know, in many situations, we don't rely on all of us going out and finding out about things that are happening. We rely on journalists to, to communicate about some of those really big and important stories. If you think about... Um, you know, uh, various examples of, you know, war crimes or abuse of power or, or major issues. We've relied on journalists to do that. Now we have a situation where there's a 10-year penalty for even disclosing the existence of um, uh, an a particular kind of ASIO operation. Um, where it, it's the, the, the possibility of um, monitoring because of technological change of who you talk to, when and so on. And the possibility that that climate in itself, rather than that somebody is going to specifically be prosecuted for any of those things, but that that climate is going to create a situation where people are forced to really risk a huge amount to tell those stories. What do you think that that situation... What, what, what is the likely results of that situation going to be? Can I, can I answer with a very political thing? I reject the premise of your question. Um, uh, uh, look, uh, you hear this a lot, and I think that we have some serious constraints on journalists' freedom of speech. But what really worries me is when we spend all this time talking about journalists' freedom of speech, what happens is the journalists get a little exception and all of us have to go <coughs> hike. Um, uh, so in the data retention debate, there was a lot of attention paid by the Labor Party to making sure that journalists' data was protected because journalists are so incredibly special. And then the rest of us who aren't journalists, and I am not a journalist, um, you know, well, too bad. Our data gets retained and, and they get complete open access. I'm, I, 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 I worry that when we place journalists as a class, as some special character, the, the fourth estate or the fifth estate or whatever, um, uh, then, then we're undermining everybody else's liberties. Um, uh, and and, and I, have a serious, I have a serious problem with that. I, I don't think we should be um, restricting journalists' freedom of speech, but I don't think we should be um, imposing any less restrictions on journalists than apply to everybody else in this room. I broadly agree with that. I think you have to recognise that journalists are the gateway that separate the whistleblower on the one hand from the public at large on the other hand. And anyone who's ever tried to get an unpopular message out through the media will understand just how powerful the Murdoch empire is in, in keeping the gate closed when it suits them. Um, that said, uh, I think, first of all, that there are some bits of government information which, for obvious reasons, should not be broadcast. That's, that's pretty easy. I think that there's a great deal of overreach in the range of information which governments say shouldn't be uh, made publicly available regardless. Um, and, you know, I mean, an ASIO operation that happened 15, 20 years ago strikes me as something that couldn't conceivably be justifiable. I mean, the, oh. and we, we, we know some of the things that they've done um, because luckily the news has got out. And frankly, I think things like that, if they do not relate to the, the individual security of the op operators involved 
or the national security interests, then it seems to me there's no justification for jumping on journalists who speak about it. Um, the, the fact that journalists may face uh, real problems um, is a very serious inhibition on free speech because some of them, at least, will be inclined to go easy on it and steer a wide course around the limitations, and if the limitations are already too wide, the result is bad. Um, all that said, I, I don't see why they should get special exceptions. It was a political payoff, wasn't it? It was a political payoff, so the government the could make party. itself popular, we'll just put it that way. popular it was again the with... <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I'm sure that both <laughs> sides of politics could see the the benefits in in sucking up to the press. Yeah. <laughs> well, on that uh, salutary note, <laughs> <laughs> really optimistic. Let's <laughs> really seize optimistic. The day. <laughs> really optimistic. Um, we've covered just a short, a fraction of many of the issues here, um, and I'm very grateful to our panelists for sharing their knowledge, their ideas. Uh, for having a little bit of biffo at the beginning and then reverting to excellent good manners. Um, please join me in thanking both of our panellists.